that shame played in your upbringing? Have you ever considered the impact that shame played in your upbringing? Now, some of us maybe were raised in environments and in homes where, where it was not a major issue. It was not part of our upbringing. Lori and I were not that. We had dysfunctional homes. And in my home, shame played a major part in the very identification as to who we were. As Barretts, we carried shame simply because we were the Barretts simply because we did not have the money that the other people around us had, simply because uh, it was defined. And you see, my parents would never have said this, but it ultimately was defined. We all picked it up. We picked up the clues that said, if you have money, and we don't, you're important, you're significant. And we don't, so we're unimportant, we're insignificant. And I probably have told you, I remember when, uh, when we were first ministering up in Lake Bronson, my brother Tom came to speak there, and I asked him, I said, Tom, so I'm, in, I'm 30 years old. I said, Tom, does it ever feel like we're second-class citizens? He said, Gary, not only as Barrett's were we second-class citizens, we knew we are never going to become first-class citizens. It's beyond our reach. And so there was, in our very identification as a family, this, it, was, it was woven into the warp and move of who we were in my family that we have a sense of shame that we don't quite measure up. Lori's home was different in how it dealt with the issue of shame. Lori's home, is it came up in places of conflict. And if there was conflict between two people in the family, then the, the tactic that you used was blame and shame. You blame them for something they did. doesn't have to relate anything at all to whatever the, the discussion is about. You blame them for something they did and with the intent of shaming them, making them feel bad, and that's how you win the argument. And you don't bother ever discussing the real issue. That was another way. There's a third way that we'll bring up that uh, Holmes experienced before we're done here. But this shame issue is a powerful, powerful thing particularly if it has been used abusively in our upbringing. So I ask you, have you ever thought about that? Have you ever thought, I was 30 years old before it began to dawn on me, we lived with a sense of shame. Turn with me, if you will, to Hebrews chapter 2. Hebrews chapter 2. As we think about that, and we'll now step into the scriptures... Hebrews chapter 2, beginning in verse 11, we read this. For both he who sanctifies and those who are being sanctified are all of one. For which reason he is not ashamed to call them brethren, saying, I will declare your name to my brethren. In the midst of the assembly, I will sing praise to you. And again, I will put my trust in him. And again, here am I and the children whom God has given me. If you'd like to fill in your notes, I want to fill them in right up front for you, and then we'll take this apart piece by piece. Christ's connection to us redemptively, key word, Christ's connection to us redemptively has uplifted us relationally. That's the thought we want to unfold from these few verses that are here. You'll notice in verse 11, he began with, for both he who sanctifies and those who are being sanctified. That's what we're talking about, a redemptive 
experience, a redemptive connection. It is in that context of which we are speaking and of which the writer here in Hebrews is speaking. It is in that context of God having sent the Son who came and bore death, tasted death, is what verse 9 said, on behalf of every man, was made perfect through his sufferings so that we might share in his glory. The entire context here is that of one which is redemptive. It is not a generic context in which Christ, as it says here, for he who sanctifies and those who are being sanctified are all of one, for which reason he's not ashamed to call them brethren. It doesn't say, for all of mankind, he's not ashamed to call them brethren. It says, for those who are in this redemptive relationship, Sanctified, of course, those who, those who, uh, for both he who sanctifies and those who are being sanctified. Sanctified means to be set apart. That's the root idea to the word, to set apart. So there is the one who set apart some, and there are the some who have been set apart. We've been set apart for kingdom purposes by the one who came and took on and tasted death on our behalf, took on flesh, tasted death on our behalf. The one whom we've celebrated at Christmas songs and hymns this morning, the magnificent truths that are there. He is the one who sanctifies, does a work in our lives that sets us apart for kingdom purposes. We are the sanctified. He is the sanctifier. He who sanctifies those who are being sanctified. And throughout these, these few verses that we're wrestling with here, this is, the context is constantly this. Here, here is Christ. Here's what he's done. Here's all of us who experience this from Christ. He sanctifies. We're being sanctified. And it says they are all of one, which is interesting because it doesn't specifically say all of one what. And that's where you come. It's one of those places you come to and you go, all of one, all of one what? Another way you could translate it is they're all from one. One what? Well, I believe it has, comes right down to this whole redemptive issue. Verse 14, As much then as the children have partaken of flesh and blood, he himself likewise shared in the same, that through death he might destroy him. I believe what he's talking about there is they're all sourced in. They all come from this same place. This redemptive thing we're talking about. This work that God has done. This thing where, where Christ came and he walked upon the earth. He lived the sinless life. And then he went to the cross on our behalf. He became our sin bearer. He tasted death for all of us. This is the gospel. This is that sanctifying work by which we are sanctified. And he says it all comes out of this one thing. This one reality of how we share with him in that. We are united in that, if you will. We are all part of one redemptive work. We have two different roles in it. Christ does the redeeming. We get redeemed. But it's all part of that work that God is doing that the writer to the Hebrews is describing here. So it's Christ's connection to us redemptively as we have responded to the gospel and he is at work in our lives. Christ's connection to us redemptively has uplifted us relationally. 
For both he who sanctifies and those who are being sanctified are, are all of one. This, is this, one. this one work within the context of the gospel and redemption which is going on. For which reason he's not ashamed to call them brethren. Not ashamed to call them brethren. Here's just a, 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 an interesting thought. Some of the lexicons will tell us that in some places, this word for being ashamed, this is just, this is just extra. There's no charge for this. Is to shrink or to disfigure. Isn't that what happens when we've been shamed or we shame somebody else? Is that it? Try and make them feel small? Try and destroy or disfigure something in their spirit? Isn't that what shame does? It shrinks us, disfigures us. But Christ isn't that, is he? He's not ashamed to call us brethren. And then, as Hebrews does so often, Hebrews is just filled with Old Testament references, throws out a couple of, uh, of scriptures that I believe what is happening here is like, and this, this is the context. This is the same context into which Christ has stepped. And this is what it is like. And so in Psalm chapter 22, Psalm 22, we see in verse 1. And here, of course, is where having a handheld mic gets goofy. All right? It's a little trickier to turn pages. But in Psalm chapter 22, beginning in verse 1, you're familiar with this. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? You're familiar with it because you know that's what Christ proclaimed from the cross. And so we're seeing here this identification of how Christ, having tasted death for all of us, as verse 9 and 10 say, having tasted death for all of us, had been made perfect through suffering while he was there. He, he, he cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from helping me and from the words of my groaning? And in Psalm 22, you have a sense of this, this individual where everything is difficult and hard and God doesn't seem to be listening. And, and, and so he's just pouring out his heart that God seems to have left him and then in verse, uh, picking it up in verse 19. But you, O Lord, after all of this description is anguish, but you, O Lord, do not be far from me. O my strength, hasten to help me. Deliver me from the sword, my precious life from the power of the dog. Save me from the lion's mouth and from the horns of the wild oxen. And in his despair, he calls out to God and asks for deliverance, and then the end of the verse says, you have answered me. And now the psalm turns, and he says, I will declare your name to my brethren. In the midst of the assembly, I will praise you. What I want you to grasp there, friends, because we're going to tie it in. What I want you to grasp is the psalm written from that place of despair, that place of it looked like all was lost, and then God delivers and he declares God's greatness to his brethren. Okay, so in Isaiah then, if we turn there to Isaiah chapter 8, this is where the second, this is where the second of the references come from in the book of Hebrews, back in verses uh, 12 and 13. For the Lord spoke thus to me, Isaiah chapter 8 verse 11, For the Lord spoke thus to me with a strong hand and instructed me that I should not walk in the way of this people, saying... Do not say a conspiracy concerning all that this people call a conspiracy, nor be afraid of their threats, nor be troubled. 
The Lord of hosts, him you shall hallow. Let him be your fear and let him be your dread. He will be as a sanctuary, but a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense to both the house of Israel as a trap and a snare to the inhabitants of Jerusalem. And many among them shall stumble. They shall fall and be broken, be snared and taken. Bind up the testimony. Seal the law among my disciples. And I will wait on the Lord who hides his face from the house of Jacob. And I will hope in him, here am I and the children of whom the Lord has given me. We are for signs and wonders in Israel from the Lord of hosts who dwells in Mount Zion. And the writer to the book of Hebrews has quoted both of these passages. And there's a parallel thought in each of the passages if you follow it. There is somebody. First it's the psalmist, and then later it's Isaiah. They're in absolute despair. Everything seems uh, stacked against them. It looks as if there is no hope. Until God intervenes. And when God intervenes, they turn to praise. When God intervenes, the scene changes. And I believe these are elevated and identified with Christ. Because isn't that what happened with him? We've just read about how he tasted death for all of us two weeks ago. And we saw how he was made perfect through suffering last week. We've seen these things unfold. That he went through this time when he came to earth. You know, we know what happened to him, right? We we celebrate the incarnation. We think what an incredible thing. And it is amazing truth. The most amazing truth of history is what we're celebrating this month. But it was anguish and bitterness for him as he ultimately was put on a cross. But it wasn't the end. You see, just like with the psalmist and just like with Isaiah, yes, they went through difficult times. Yes, it looked like things would uh, come to a very bad end until God intervenes and Jesus Christ won the victory. And it is in the context of that victory, it is in the context of him having suffered, having tasted death for us, and yet now the victory is his. How can he possibly have the victory, right? We know that. We're going to celebrate it at Easter also through his death, burial, and his resurrection. And in the context of the victory, he is able to sing out with the psalmist and with Isaiah. He is able to say, I'll declare your name to my brethren. In the midst of the assembly, I will sing praise to you. I will put my trust in him, because that's where the victory comes from. Here am I and the children whom God has given me. And he proclaims this magnificent truth that God has had a victory for the one who sanctifies. That's him who went to the cross on our behalf. And those who are being sanctified, that's us. Through faith in Jesus Christ. And he says, God has had this magnificent victory among all this entire group. Everybody that is there so that now he is able to say, I'm not ashamed to call them my brothers. Brothers in conflict and brothers in victory. Winning does that, doesn't it, friends? Doesn't winning just do that? Think about it. How many times have you seen sports teams after the, you know, whether it's a World Series or uh, somebody winning um, the Super Bowl, okay? What they, as they talk about it and they interview them time and again, you hear them say about how we were all together. We stayed together. We were all one. This is a great group of guys that I got to play with. This was amazing. And they constantly give this refrain of how everybody was one 
in this victory. And everybody's doing good. You know there were times during the course of that year they didn't get along with each other. There were conflicts there in the, in the locker room. There were times they were just really frustrated with one another sometimes when the days didn't look good. But when the victory was won, they're able to celebrate and say, we are brothers on this team. We're one on this team. Now imagine, friends, if that's what happens with a sports team. Imagine what it's going to be like when we get to glory. Imagine what it's going to be like when we get to glory and we find that we've been united together in brotherhood through what Jesus Christ has accomplished. How powerful and how amazing will that be that Jesus Christ himself will celebrate us as his brothers. That's magnificent. See, I don't think we're going to continue in our fractured ways in heaven we got a lot of fractured ways, don't we? And we got a lot of fractured ways. we got people we sit here with every week, week after week. We sit in the same worship center, but we will not talk to them. we got people in our family with whom we will not talk. We have not talked in years. And it happens over and over and over among God's people, and I'm sure it breaks his heart. Because Jesus himself... He's not ashamed to call us all his brothers. He's not ashamed that we're all united in this redeeming work that God has done. We're all coming from that same source, that God is at work here. God's doing an amazing thing here. But the day's going to come when all of these fractures are going to be set aside. The day's going to come when we look back, we say, what a waste of time and energy that I isolated myself from my brothers and sisters in my family or my brothers and sisters in Christ or my neighbor because my own personal bitterness. Christ didn't do that to us. See, Christ knows it was all worth it because he's won the victory. Remember, we read in verse 9, he's already crowned with glory and honor, having tasted death for us. It wasn't fun going through it, was it, friends? You remember the prayer in the garden. Great drops of blood that he sweat, saying, Father, if there's any other way to do this, let this cup pass from me. I don't want to be the sin bearer. This is not going to be fun. And if there's any other solution, can we use it now? Nevertheless, your will be done. We'll see in Hebrews chapter 12, verse 3. We'll see that we're to be looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the what? The shame. The shame. It was not fun for him to do that. But with the victory won, he's able to bring us into his fellowship and say, I'm not ashamed to call you my brothers. You're the reason I went to the cross. You're the reason I had to go through all of this. But the victory is magnificent, and you are my brothers. God's plan that Jesus would taste death for everyone was absolutely perfect, friends. We maybe have our own issues with it, but God knows what he was doing. He identified with us so that we could be identified with him. And being identified with him, there's no shame in that place. You understand? There's no shame there. 
He lifts us up. He lifts us up to say, you are my brother. I have, um, there's five kids in our family. And one of us broke out of this cycle of shame very early on. It changed his life. Okay. The rest of us just watch in amazement. And we're very, very proud of him. Don't get me wrong. Very proud of him. But it's my brother Tom. And I have mentioned to some of you that, you know, God has called him to a ministry in Washington, D.C., and uh, you know that. And he knows a lot of the people you see in the news. Okay, he, he just is on a first-name basis with them. All right. Uh, at his daughter's wedding, uh, John Kasich, who, although he didn't get the nomination, was one of the governors who uh, threw his hat into the ring. Okay, John Kasich sat right in front of me at my niece's wedding. Okay, so he had, he, he, he's in this place, all right, and, and, but he broke out of the shame. I can recall when I was in high school, he was one of the was school of 3,500 students, and he was one of the cool guys. Three years ahead of me, he was one of the cool guys. So when I was a freshman, he's a, he's a senior, and he's one of the cool guys. I never made it into the cool guys club, okay? Angie, I know it's hard for you to believe that. You, Gary? I could just see the expression, right? You? You never made it into the cool guy club? Yeah, she's still, yeah, I'm only speaking truth here, Angie, okay? Go with me on that. Just take it by faith. But my brother was in the cool guy club. And you know what? There would be times. There would be times when one of his, I'd bump into one of his friends in the hall. I'd bump into his friend in the hall. We'd visit for a minute because this guy had been in my home. He knew who I was. I'm Tom Barrett's brother, right? And then he would say to one of the kids with him, this is Tom Barrett's brother. You know what that did? That just elevated me. I'm Tom Barrett's brother. I'm nobody in this school. But right now, I've been identified as Tom Barrett's brother. And because Tom is one of the cool guys, I just, I just wore a little bit of that. Now, usually they had the same expression Angie just had. Like, you're Tom Barrett's brother? What? What's wrong here, okay? But nonetheless, in my heart, I was uplifted to be Tom Barrett's brother. I was proud to be identified with him. Do do we get this, friends? Christ's connection to us redemptively uplifts us. It's not that he came down to be my brother. He lifted us up to be his brothers. He lifted us up because of his perfect work of redemption. Because he tasted death on our behalf. That we could be called the brothers of Jesus Christ. And he's not ashamed to call us that. Is that magnificent? Think about, we're going to celebrate God coming down, taking on human flesh, doing this amazing work. And when it's done, this same one then says, and you are my brothers. And he's taking us into the fellowship of his family in that way. Now I want to remind us, friends, I want to remind us that the exhortation, we've, we've stepped away from it a little bit because there's, there's a couple chapters that it deals with. But I want to remind us that the exhortation at the beginning of Hebrews chapter 2 was this, Therefore, we must give the more earnest heed to the things we have heard, lest we drift away. This is all thoughts being followed upon that. 
And so one of these magnificent truths that is being set forth for us so that we don't drift away, so that we'll be motivated to say, man, I want to stay right there. I want to stay focused upon Jesus Christ. I want to continue to walk with him, is what we're looking at today. Christ's connection to us redemptively has uplifted us relationally. There's a reason to stay focused upon him. There's a reason not to drift away to something which is far less than being one of his brothers and welcomed into his family. And I'd also like us to consider this. Do you notice this is not manipulative? It's not guilt-driven. It's not something we're shamed to. The writer isn't trying to wound us here to get us to conform. You ought to feel so terrible about who you are so that then you will follow Jesus. He uplifts us instead. He says, look, look what Christ has done for you. Christ has tasted death on your behalf. And God has given such a magnificent victory in that that the unity that you share uplifts you to the point Christ says, I'm proud. I'm proud that you are my brother. It's inspiration-driven. Christ is not ashamed of the likes of us. And I ask myself this question. Where else? Where else? Where else can I find someone who knows how completely I'm a screw-up, but he embraces me as his brother anyways? We started out asking the question about shame and its impact in the family in which we were raised. If you came from a home like mine, where shame was communicated with the very perception of who your family was, and I know others who experience this, by the way, Christ wants to redefine your sense of self. You see, that kind of shame leads you, leaves us, if that's where we came from, it leaves us with this weird odds with ourself. I can never feel good. I can never be at peace. I can, I can never get comfortable with myself because in myself, I know I'm shameful. We're at odds with ourselves. And you know what comes with that? Low expectations. Never expect much. Don't expect good things. Don't expect success. You don't deserve it. You're not worth it. Nobody's ever going to get behind you and support you. And Christ would speak to us and say, you can let the shame go now. For you are my brother. You are part of a magnificent family of the redeemed of all ages. And I'm proud. I'm proud to own you as my brother. So let the shame go and begin to live your life with an entirely new sense of freedom. Do not be at odds with yourself. That's if you came from a home like mine. That was a home that, had, that left you with low expectations. If you came from a home like Lori's, then you come from a home where you, what I would describe as you have abrasive expectations. 
you're assuming that anybody who has a different view than you, you make this assumption that they're shaming you. They're blaming you. And they're always against you because they're not there. They're not there just agreeing with everything that you say. And so now you're at odds with them immediately. You know what that does? Abrasive expectation prevents you from being able to discuss anything. You can't talk about anything because, well, I know you're out to get me. I know you're about to slam me down here. So, hey, I'll slam you down first. That's how it's going to be. And we go through life keeping people at a distance, keeping people separated from us. You see, because this one, we're not at odds with ourselves. We're at odds with others. Because we expect they're at odds with us. We just believe it. They're at odds with us. I know the hammer's going to come. Boom, I'm going to get shamed. I'm going to get blamed. So I'll do it first or I'll keep a distance or, hey, it won't get close. If this has been our background, and I know others beyond Lori's family, if this has been our background, Christ will teach us to live with a new perspective. He'll teach us to calm down, listen, and understand. Just because somebody maybe has a different perspective or view than you, they're not out to get you. They're not going to slap you down. They're not going to beat you up over it. They don't, they don't have to defend every position. They're actually quite comfortable with you seeing it one way and them seeing it another way. And it's okay. Because you're on a journey and they're on a journey. It's all right. Christ will inspire us to live with a new perspective about people around us. They're not out to get us. I told you there was a third perspective, friends. The one, my home, odds with myself. Lori's home, you're at odds with others. But the third perspective, and and, and it, it frightens me that it could be the most detrimental. And that is... We're at odds with God. See, if I'm at odds with myself, I have low expectations about what's going to come of my life. If I'm at odds with others, I have abrasive expectations that others are out to kind of, kind of get me, so I better make sure I keep my defenses up. But if I'm at odds with God, I have impossible expectations. And I know, I know families where the expectations have been impossible, and this is what frightens me. If you came from a home where religious shame, I don't know what else to call it, was used to get you to conform to a particular behavior, that leaves a deep and lasting impact. I think it unfolds in at least one of two ways. One is you spend your life trying to please God. And if you fail at some things, like we all do, the burden of that failure becomes overwhelming. And you begin to wonder if God even, even loves you anymore. You see, because shame, a religious shame, has been placed upon you. How frightening to think. God might not even love me anymore because I messed up. The other way I think it plays itself out sometimes, 
is simply this. A young person raised in that environment of religious shame, all the time this idea that God's weight is hanging over them so that, uh, get anything wrong, man, you're in trouble. You better turn. You know, and it's always this constant oppressive thing of God is going to be displeased with you. And I think when eventually they just grow up and become adults and go, I've had enough of that. I can't handle that guilt anymore. I can't handle the weight of that because I can't live up to, to impossible expectations. And some of us here were perhaps raised in that where you knew God was always the hammer being used. Always the hammer being used to get you to conform your behavior. And may I suggest very gently, my dear friend, because it will be a journey that might take you literally years to unravel, but may I suggest to you that today it is quite possible that God would like to deliver you from the burden of a religious shaming that you were raised with. And he would like you better than to see him as the big hammer ready to destroy you at anything you've done wrong. That he would rather welcome you into your, his family and say, I want you to understand today, I'm proud to call you my brother. For some, that's impossible to get hold of right now. That's why I say that will take a journey. Now, friends, let's wrap it up with this. This simple thought, God wants us to walk in the wholeness of holiness. God wants us to walk in the wholeness of holiness. Everything that I've said here has to do with being sourced in this one thing, God's redemptive work. But that as a result of this redemptive work... We live a changed life, not a shame-manipulated one. As a result of this redemptive work, we live a changed life, not a shame-manipulated one. And my friends, they are two entirely different lives. Father, thank you. Thank you that Christ... Is not ashamed to call us brethren, the likes of us, Lord. May the wonder of that reality fill each of our hearts and minister to us as we need it individually, Lord. I ask in his precious name, amen.